Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaze and Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 15. Episode 15. Yes. Right. Second episode of season two. That's right. And we're going to continue our discussions of the adventures that happened during the break, during the hiatus. Yes. We had some fun ones. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Brother Guy from the Vatican Observatory and Julia Healy, who was a PhD student at the University of Cape Town. So the reason we spoke to, well, you spoke to Brother Guy because you were at the Vatican. Yes. So I visited the Vatican Observatory in Rome. I had previously visited in 2010 for the Vatican Observatory Summer School, which is a very exciting summer school. We'll talk a little bit about it more uh, with Brother Gar. And I was visiting again for a follow-up conference with all of the alumni of the previous Vatican Summer Schools. And we had a conference about extra astronomical life. So... Extra astronomical, okay. So life outside of astronomy. So we were all astronomers. Oh, I thought you were talking about extraterrestrial. (laughs) (laughs) No, extra astronomical life. So for the astronomers that have gone through the summer school, we got together to talk about what else they had done. So outreach, whether they had done... You know, some, there were some school teachers there. There were people who had gone into data science or other other roles, other jobs. And all of those people were obviously welcome to talk about their experiences. We had one awesome talk by a guy who runs, he works for NASA, and he does a lot of the rocket building stuff. Oh. He was responsible for the Orion abort test, where they tested the Orion capsule that's going to carry humans soon and tested the abort. Uh, and now he's busy building the habitat, which is going to transfer people from Earth orbit to the moon orbit. Oh, cool. I know. Yeah. So there was some super cool stuff. And so not just talking about astronomy, mm-hmm. it was really cool. Uh, but while I was there, I had a chance to sit down with the director of the Vatican Observatory, uh, Brother Guy Consolmonio, and talk to him a little bit about this why. I mean, why is there a Vatican Observatory? Uh, why do they have these summer schools? And the big questions. Yeah. Why religion and faith? Mm. So. Oh, very good questions. Let's hear from Brother Guy who answers a lot of these questions. So today I'm joined by Brother Guy Consolmagno, who is the director of the Vatican Observatory in Rome. And we'll be asking him a little bit about the Vatican Observatory, what he does, uh, where he's from, and... Yeah, welcome to the Cosmic Savannah Gar. It's wonderful to be back, and it's great to be back in Africa, so to speak, even though we're not in Africa now. I know that's where the podcast will be heard. So uh, just to start off, uh, what is the Vatican Observatory and what do you do? The Vatican Observatory is the National Observatory of the Vatican City State. And it was founded in 1891, really with the idea of emphasizing that the city state was different from and independent of Italy. That was very controversial back then. But with the uh, Concordat of 1929, Italy finally agreed the Vatican was independent, the focus shifted a little bit to simply being the church's presence in the world of science. 
we're a PR outfit, in effect. We do real science. We work with all the other astronomers. But it doesn't really matter what science we do as long as it's good science and that it is in cooperation with the other scientists around the world. And the real message that the church supports science, I've discovered, is not a message we have to give to the scientists. Most scientists have their own religious beliefs, or they've come from religious beliefs, or they're becoming converts, or they're becoming atheists. You know, there's this wonderful churning in anybody's life. The message that we find we have to give is to the people in the pews. So in many ways, I'm a missionary of science to the religious people. That's very cool. I've never thought of it that way. And, and what sort of science do you do then? So you, you work in research yourself and other, other astronomers based at the observatory? Yeah, there are about a dozen of us. And everybody who comes into the observatory, you have to be a Jesuit priest or brother, a couple of uh, diocesan priests, but members of the Jesuit religious order. So we all belong to the same order. We can all live together under the same rule. Everybody comes in with a doctorate in some corner of astronomy. But they're never going to be the same corners. So whatever you happen to get your doctorate in, and that's the research you want to do, that's what you wind up doing. And as a result, we've got, you know, one guy who does cosmology in terms of um, understanding dark energy. We've got another fellow who's interested in uh, quantum cosmology and quantum gravity and what goes on during the Planck time, the, you know, the very, very tiniest fraction after the Big Bang. At the other end, we've got people who study meteors, cosmic dust that hits the atmosphere of the Earth, and trying to characterize that. A couple of us, myself and my colleague, Brother Bob Mackey, are meteoriticists, which try to say that fast three times. And we study the meteorites, the actual rocks that are recovered after hitting the Earth. But we've also got people who do spectra of stellar clusters. Uh, a fellow who does the theory of stellar evolution in his big computer. Somebody who's interested in the evolution of galaxies. Somebody who's been interested in quasars. When he was younger, he did nearby quasars. Now he's doing more distant quasars. The point is that any science is good as long as it's good science. And we can talk to each other about the exciting work we do, and we can talk to our colleagues. So every one of us will publish a paper with 10 other scientists at 10 other universities or institutions around the world. And it becomes a focal point for international astronomy here. So in terms of your PR exercise then, right, you're promoting science to the Vatican and the followers of the Catholic Church. Um, so hearing you talk about things like the Big Bang, I mean, most people would not expect that from the director of the Vatican Observatory. And are you, so your challenges are primarily within the church? I think our challenges are within people who are going to be surprised. I love surprising people. And in a sense, I'm delighted when people are surprised that we're doing work on the Big Bang or that I'm interested in meteorites that are four and a half billion years old, because I want to emphasize, especially to the people in the pews who may not realize it, that Catholic theology and indeed most Protestant theology is not that strict fundamentalist idea that, you know, the world is 6,000 years old or whatever they come up with. As I remind people, you know, Catholics are not creationists. It has never been part of our tradition that the world was made in seven days, literally days, because that's not how we understand scripture. It's bad theology as well as being bad science. And generally, you find bad theology and bad science wind up going hand in hand. Many people are surprised to hear that the Big Bang Theory was actually devised by a fellow from Belgium who had two degrees, one from MIT and one from Louvain, who happened to be a Catholic priest. 
And in fact, a lot of the resistance to the Big Bang Theory came from people who were suspicious of him. Oh, you're just inventing this idea of the universe having a beginning to, 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 rec- you know, to rescue Genesis and the idea of creation, which is actually bad theology as well as bad science. Some people think that when we say God created the universe, we mean that he's the one who set off the Big Bang. That's not really what we mean by creation out of nothing. Stephen Hawking made this idea of He wrote a few years ago, I figured out what started the Big Bang. It was a quantum fluctuation in the space-time continuum. And these fluctuations in space and time is what we call gravity. And so he says, because there is a thing called gravity, I don't need God. Well, wait a minute. If his idea of God is the force that started the Big Bang, and then he says gravity is the force that started the Big Bang, he's not saying there's no God. He's saying that we should all be worshiping gravity, (laughs) which is ridiculous. Well, maybe that's why he thinks Catholics celebrate mass. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you've used that one before. I've used that one before, yeah. But you know, the, the, the Catholic, the Christian, the traditional idea of creation from nothing is that even space and time is created. And so it's an idea that fits in beautifully with Einsteinian ideas of a space-time continuum. The idea that creation is not something that happened just 13.7 billion years ago but also is happening now. It is happening at every time and every place because that's what creation outside of the universe of space and time means that it's the same in every space and every time. And it's marvelously mind-blowing, but it's also very consistent with how we think of a quantum universe, how we think of a relativistic universe. What was your path into this? As a kid, I grew up in Michigan uh, with an Italian ancestry dad and an Irish ancestry mom. So coming from the Irish and Italian, the being Catholic was pretty obvious to me. And I grew up in a household that was well-educated. Both my parents had gone to college. The question was not what I go to college, but what would I get my doctorate in? Because they knew I was, you know, an obnoxiously smart kid. And I grew up at the time, you know, when I started school was when Sputnik was launched. When I started university, that's when people were landing on the moon. How could you not be crazy about space? At the same time, I also loved writing. I loved journalism. I enjoyed being a Catholic, and I thought about being a priest, and I loved science fiction. And all of these different things sort of wound up pulling my path one way or another. I actually wound up attending MIT because my best friend was going there. When I visited him, I saw they had the world's largest collection of science fiction books. And at that time, it was, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Well, if I'm going to be at a university, I may as well be at a place that's full of nerds like me, and I can read science fiction, and I can study planets, because I thought planets are places where people have adventures. And I wound up in the Earth and Planetary Science Department. Only after I arrived did I discover that was actually geology. You know, I'm going to be studying rocks. I thought I was going to be studying something exciting. And then I found out there are rocks that fall out of the sky from the asteroid belt. They're called meteorites. And this just made me so excited to think you can hold a piece of outer space in your hand. And that drove my research then for the next 10 years. I wound up with a master's degree at MIT. My undergraduate thesis was good enough. They said, stick around, we'll give you a master's degree for it. And then I went off to the University of Arizona, where they were just starting a planetary science program. And I wound up working with a meteoriticist there. And then in the bigger question of plasmas and magnetic fields and the physics of all of this. On the energy of that, I went off there first two years at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, 
where I was a postdoctoral fellow and I taught a course at Harvard. And then I got a position like that at MIT. I thought this is great until I hit 30 years old. And I realized I've now been in these temporary jobs for five years. Where's my future going? And also the excitement and the enthusiasm that I had had when I was 18 was beginning to run out. And I'd be walking home thinking, why am I beating my brain out trying to write a paper about the moons of Jupiter that five people in the world will read and two of them are my enemies? And there's people starving in the world. And I'm getting old. I'm turning 30. Oh, my gosh. I could not imagine being so I wasn't going to be a kid anymore. I know the feeling. <laughs> I didn't have a family. I didn't have debts. I didn't have anything tying me down. I could go anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And I had no idea, really, where it was I wanted to go. So I quit science. And I joined the U.S. Peace Corps. And I said, I'll go anywhere you ask me to go. I'll do anything you ask. They sent me to Kenya, to Nairobi. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to be teaching up country in a remote school, and that'll be fun. And then they took a look at my background, and they sent me first to the best high school in the country, the Sturehe Boys Center, supported by the government. It's a, they had computer labs and lasers, and this was 1982. Great school. And then they sent me, actually, they pulled me from there and sent me to the University of Nairobi, where I wound up teaching astrophysics to graduate students. I'm thinking, I could have done this back in Boston. <laughs> But I learned a difference. First, there's the obvious case that only a technologically developed society can feed its population on a regular basis for all of the problems that come with technology, and you can't deny them, the alienation, the pollution, and all that, which we have to fight against. Still, it's what feeds people. To have a technologically sophisticated society, you've got to have an educated populace. For that, you've got to have schools. For that, you've got to have teachers. The guys I was teaching astrophysics to had jobs waiting for them at the Kenya Science Teachers College. So I could see that my teaching was going to help develop the country. But that wasn't the real reason why they or anybody else wanted to learn astronomy. I went up country every weekend with my friends who really were out in the countryside in the remote areas. And I'd set up my little telescope and everybody in the village would go look through the telescope and go, wow, you know, have you ever seen the moons of, of Jupiter? Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn? Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn and not gone, wow? I mean, I've been looking at them now for 60 years and I still go, wow. That's what human beings do. In those days, I had a really, you know, very clever cat, much better at being a cat than I ever would be. But my cat never wanted to look through the telescope. Human beings want to look through the telescope. And if you tell somebody, you can't look through the telescope because you're a girl, because you're an African, because you're a whatever, you're denying them their humanity. It's a terribly cruel thing to do. But if you say to everybody, this is what astronomy is. It's not stars and planets. It's the conversation that we human beings have about the stars and the planets. And everybody gets to take part in the conversation. Yeah, and I mean, I think that what, this is one of the beauties of astronomy. And I guess that's what we're talking about now is that it's, we're under one sky and it's one of the great um, tools for bringing people together. I mean, I think it's, it's why I love it. It's why you love it. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful science. And, and of course, it's the gateway drug to all the other cool things you can do with science. Because anybody can look at the stars and go, wow. And that's what we were able to do. And that's why you do papers about the moons of Jupiter. 
Because science is this conversation we have among human beings. It's not really about the moons of Jupiter. It's what I've done about them and what you've done about them and what we can learn talking to each other about them. And anybody who wants to, you know, there are a lot of other things you can do with your life, but if you're so crazy that you want to really dedicate your life to only astronomy, there's room for you. We can make room for you. And I mean, I think that leads us quite naturally into why I'm here and why we're here right now. Uh, because one of the wonderful things that the Vatican Observatory does uh, is run the Vatican Observatory Summer School every two years, which I was very privileged to attend in 2010 uh, and really changed my life. I, I had the most amazing time. I learned a, uh, so much and made so many great friends. And uh, now we're in the, the Vatican Observatory again, uh, nine years later for a what is called a super vos uh which is a, a reunion of all the, the previous uh, vos participants can you tell us a little bit about the the vos concept and philosophy and why why the vatican decided to do it and continues well as i say astronomy is this conversation you have with people the more people you can talk to the more fun it is and the richer the science becomes there was a, a jesuit many years ago martin mccarthy i remember him He was an old man when I arrived. He's probably the age I am now. And about 1986, as he was shaving one day, he said, you know, the one thing we don't have, we've got astronomers from around the world, but we don't have students. If we could figure out some way to bring young people here, they would enjoy what we've got and we would enjoy learning from them. So he came up with the idea of a summer school. And the basic format has stayed the same since 1986. 25 students drawn from universities around the world. The only criteria to get in is that you have to show you want to be a professional astronomer. There are lots of other great things you can do. This is going to be prof professional astronomers and no more than two from any country. And the school is free. And if you are accepted, we get about more than 100 applicants for the 25 places, so it's hard to get in. But if you're accepted, We'll make sure that you get here. Pay what you can towards travel and housing and whatever you can't pay, we will. Because we want to make sure that it is totally stress-free, that all the emphasis is on the astronomy. But as a result, two-thirds of our students are from the third world. From the very beginning, half the students have been women. And it's not because we had a quota. It's just the way it came out. And it's always been like that. And you learn a lot in the classroom about astronomy, but you learn even more over the dinner table with people from all over the world discovering where we're different, but even more where we're alike and how the excitement of astronomy unites all of us. Yeah, I mean, that was really my experience was meeting people from 24 different countries and getting to spend a full month with them. And as you said, a shared, a shared love of astronomy, a shared interest and just Yeah, like a, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. The Supervoss we're at now, uh, so this, this sort of reunion, there have only been a few of, few of these. This is the fourth one we've had, and you do the math, we've been doing this since 86, so they're roughly one every eight years or so. We love to have the chance to bring the alumni together so you get to know each other from different stages in your careers. You know, the students of the 86 school are now the senior astronomers. Uh, the fellow who was in charge for many years of the European Southern Observatory in Chile was an alumnus of our school. The fellow who has just made the first image of a black hole with the Event Horizon Telescope was an alumnus of our school. And who knows what the alums of, you know, the last three or four schools are going to be doing in 20 years. 
But there is this shared fellowship, this bond, and you seek other Vatican Summer School students, even if they're not from your year, when you go to big meetings like the International Astronomical Union, which is going to be held in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, ex- I expect we'll see you there in 2024. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Brother Garth, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity in 2010 to come. And then thank you for the opportunity to come again now. And thank you for speaking with us. I really enjoyed it. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Just that I've always left a little bit of my heart in Africa. And I'm glad that my voice will be going there. Well, and you too soon, hopefully. Also, take advantage of the southern skies. You guys have no idea how spectacular that is for somebody from the north like me. We have an idea of how spectacular it is. (laughs) Thank you very much, Kat. Bye-bye. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I had a, gr- a great amount of uh, fun talking to Brother Gar. He's a very bubbly, charismatic Gar. Uh, excuse the pun. And <laughs> he, and he, uh, he gave me a real uh, enlightening perspective. I had never thought of it that way. Despite having gone in 2010, I think I was young. I, I didn't really think about these things in the same same way. And just to hear him explain it from his. Uh, his point of view was was really quite interesting. And I think that the intersection of faith and science is important. I think that it's something we should definitely talk about more. Uh, perhaps we can talk to some people from other religions. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. And, and, and try and explore this because I think that if we're doing outreach, and that's what we're doing here, uh, you need to try and talk to people through their own lens rather than imposing your viewpoint on them. That's true. But also I think another aspect of that is that astronomers are a diverse set of people, right? I think uh, maybe uh, the perception from the public is that we're all atheists, but there's actually people who we all work with every single day who are from every faith and every background and every culture and and nationality. And so I think one important message to get across is that you can be anyone and be an astronomer. Yeah, even in the highest echelons of the Catholic Church. Well, exactly. But yeah. also, you can be anyone and be interested in astronomy. You don't even have to be an astronomer. Yeah. You can be anyone and listen to this podcast, yeah. for example. Yeah, I, th- I think it was, I mean, it was very eye-opening and, and a wonderful experience. Uh, obviously, a lot of fun, as I said, to be back at the Vatican. I have very wonderful memories from there. And then I made a whole lot more. So, <laughs> it was it was a great trip. Lots of friends. Yes, yeah. Great friends. I mean, we, we spent a month at the Vatican Observatory, uh, and a month with people is a long time. Uh, it's full on, 24 hours a day, and you really bond. So maybe tell us a little bit more about VOS, the, the Vatican Observatory summer school that, that you went to this year. You, you, ta- you mentioned it was about extra astronomical life. So what did you talk about? Yeah, so this wasn't a, a full-on summer school. This was the uh, like a conference for, for past uh, astronomers who've gone through the Vatican Summer School, and with the ast- extra astronomical life, as I said, there were there were many different people. For myself, my work in the last couple of years has moved from research into outreach, a lot of projects, project management. I'm d- so I'm doing a lot of things which are not directly astronomy research anymore. Uh, I'm still employed at the observatory. I'm still an astronomer, but I'm doing a lot of stuff which is reaching out to to different sectors of the population and trying to to better communicate with them and form stronger relationships with 
the general, general public. So can you give us some examples of the different projects you're working on? So some of the more exciting ones at the moment are next year, the South African Astronomical Observatory here in Cape Town will be celebrating its bicentenary. 200 years. 200 years next year. Uh, and I am responsible for organizing all of those celebrations. So last year we were declared a national heritage site, South African National Heritage Site, which is a the highest uh, honor that can be bestowed on a, a site. Uh, basically, we, we're protected now from any further development or uh, we're, we are preserved. So we will be having a large unveiling for that with ministerial attendance. At the same time as that, I'll be organizing a, a large symposium uh, talking about beyond 200 years of astronomy. So the history of astronomy here in, in Africa, as well as what's happening now, recent history, things like SALT, Meerkat, and then the future. We have a very exciting future in, in Africa in terms of astronomy, and we want to try and celebrate that. Uh, so those are some of the projects I'm working on. I'm also organizing a large astronomy festival at the same time. So uh, you'll hear more about that soon. Uh, we're still in the planning phases, but we'll start advertising next year. And yeah, so these are the, some, some of the projects which are taking up all of my time trying to grow the interest in astronomy. Wow. So you don't have enough projects, Dan. I think you need a few more. <laughs> I mean, that was just scratching the surface. I'm also doing a planetarium show, which is super exciting. Oh. I'm doing this planetarium show, highlighting this again. So the history of astronomy in Africa and the exciting uh, things which are happening now. That is due to be released in September next year. Oh, that's exciting. It is exciting. And you're also doing this podcast. And I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's our side, our side hustle, our side <laughs> um, So why is it so important to kind of reach out to the public and other sectors and talk about astronomy? I think that astronomy, we've talked about it before, it's a really good tool for getting people interested in maths and science uh, and understanding how things work. But more than that, it's kind of, uh, it's a science and science in general is based on a, a level of critical thinking. So you're trained to think critically about everything. You look for evidence, you analyze that evidence, and you try and work out what's true, what's not, and what you can understand, what you can learn from it. And I think that those skills are valuable in all spheres of life. So... I think that that's definitely one major thing in terms of promoting astronomy uh, is trying to get people to think more critically in all areas of their life and this and using astronomy with its excitement and uh, beautiful pictures as the tool to do that. But also just a general excitement. I think that people being being excited about science and is is great rather than just being excited about music or rock stars or whatever. Um, I don't know if they still are rock stars, but um, <laughs> <laughs> pop stars, whatever. You're showing your age now. <laughs> Instagram celebrities. They're called uh, influencers. Influencers. <laughs> I have not been influenced. Um, but I'm trying to be an influencer in terms of science, right? Mm -hmm. So try and uh, get people interested. Yeah, and I also really liked what Brother Guy said about, you know, it's the excitement of astronomy that unites us all and we're all under one sky and that can bring us together. And and what you were saying before about 
sort of using astronomy as a hook to inspire critical thinking and appreciation of the scientific method. It reminded me of um, actually when I went to the the Lindau meeting in 2012, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, the Lindau meetings are meetings of uh, Nobel laureates and young scientists in, in Germany each year. And when I went, I spoke to Mario Molino, who um, was won, a, won the Nobel Prize for, I think it was, it was something environment related. I think it was the discovery that CFCs affect the ozone. And so I was sort of asking him about the climate change fiasco in terms of science communication. And I said that people often come up to me and ask me, you know, because I'm a scientist, about my opinion on climate change or human-induced climate change. And I sort of said, well, you know, I'm an astronomer, not a climate scientist. So I don't have so much authority to speak on that subject. So what can I do? And he said, well, I guess the importance is to instill the appreciation for the scientific method and explain what that is and sort of why it works and to to foster a, a love of critical thinking. So not just believing whatever you hear, but actually thinking it through yourself and coming to your own conclusion. So I think that's that's one of the essential aspects of science communication and astronomy communication. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of the Lindau meetings, you might remember in episode 14, we spoke to Nicole Thomas, who had just been to that, um, and Precious Sikosana, who was um, one of our in- guests in season one, was also attending the same meeting. And uh, right now, we're going to hear from a third attendee at the this year's uh, Lindau meeting of Nobel laureates, and that's Julia Healy, who is a PhD student at the University of Cape Town. And Julia's astronomy work is um, actually very closely related to mine. We work together a bit, so studying neutral hydrogen gas. And in particular, she studies galaxies that are in clusters, whereas I study galaxies that are in the field. And since, Dan, you and I are an Australian and a South African sitting in a room together, I feel like we should use a sports analogy. And I'm thinking cricket. Oh, we beat you at everything these days, so you can choose whichever one you like. Sure. I mean, like, I do not follow it. Any yeah. sports, so go Springboks. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, I, I know that Australia and, and South Africa compete a lot in, is it rugby and cricket? Yep. Right. Okay. See, I know what's going on in the world. So let, let's use cricket. I have never watched a game of cricket in my life, but I'm thinking that you've got like the, what's, is it bowler? Is that, is that the right yes. word? The bowler <laughs> and the um, batsman. batsman. And you've got some fielders around them there in the Correct. centre, right? And not then, sure where you're going with this. Huh? I'm not sure no, where you're going No, but just wait. I'll okay, get there. Okay, okay. I'll get there. Go on. <laughs> and then you've got a really large cricket pitch, right? Field. And yeah. Field. And then there's some fielders out there, you know, scattered around in this huge um, field. So the galaxies that I study are like the fielders who are scattered around in the big area, but they're really quite isolated. There's big areas of emptiness around them. And then the galaxies that Julia studies are like the galaxies close to the pitcher and the batsman where it's all kind of clustered together. Bowler, <laughs> the bowler and the batsman who are all come closer together. Do you see what I mean? I'm cringing here. <laughs> but yes, I see what you mean. I think that I think that the yeah. And the 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 bowler and the batsman are interacting, and everyone else is kind mm-hmm. of standing around, yeah. waiting for something to yeah. happen. But yeah, where the exciting stuff is happening is yeah. right at the centre. Exactly, and so that's what's going on with with Julia's galaxies, where there's exciting stuff happening to the hydrogen gas inside the galaxies because they're all closer together. 
And but I study the fielders, which we actually call field galaxies. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's just get let's, into it. Okay, let's just hear from Julia. Hello, today with us we have Julia Healy, who is a PhD student from the University of Cape Town. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Jacinta. Tell us about yourself. So, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Julia. I'm a Cape Townian native. I am a PhD student based uh, here at the University of Cape Town, but also at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Um, so, I hold a, a joint position, um, which means that I have supervisors at both institutions. Um, and I spend half of my time here in Cape Town and half of my time in Groningen in the Netherlands. Wow, that must be a pretty awesome experience. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. So, so why did you decide on a on a split position? Well, I guess the the simple answer is it was offered to me. But um, more than that, it was a project um, that followed on from what I'd done as part of my masters, and it was with one of my supervisors from my masters. But it also meant that I, I gained a new advisor in, in the Netherlands and I gained the experience and the knowledge from, from the Netherlands. The universities in the Netherlands are some of the oldest in the world and the radio astronomy institutions in the Netherlands um, are some of the oldest in the world. So what do you think are the particular benefits of getting that experience doing part of your PhD in the Netherlands as opposed to just doing it fully in South Africa? I mean, the, the experience of, of being based there gives me the international exposure, so being an international student at a university. I also get the experience of being able to learn from um, some of the radio astronomy greats. Many of the great radio astronomers have been educated um, at institutions in the Netherlands, and, and some of them are still based there. So being able to, to talk to them and to learn from them is, has been incredible. And then being able to bring that, that knowledge and that experience back home um, during my times uh, in Cape Town has been has been awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess you've increased your community, you've increased your network through this whole process and probably broadens your perspective on your work. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of which, what what is your work? What do you research? So broadly speaking, um, my field of research is in galaxy evolution. Um, but more specifically, I'm I'm interested in, in how different environments affect the, the evolution of galaxies and, and in particular, what different environments... Uh, due to the gas content of galaxies. So we've spoken quite a lot on this podcast about galaxy environments. So I think that was episode six with Eric Wilcotts. And we've also spoken to Precious about galaxy clusters as well. But maybe some of our listeners haven't heard all of these episodes. Can you just run us through quickly sort of what is galaxy environment and what is a cluster? The environment that a galaxy lives in has to do with maybe how how many or how few galaxies are nearby. So low-density environments means that there's not very many. High-density environments means that you've got lots of galaxies very close by and are potentially interacting um, with the galaxy of interest. Um, so galaxy clusters are high-density environments, and these are... I mean, think of like a community. A community has lots of lots of homes, lots of people that live... Um, within that community, um, and galaxy clusters are the same. They they're home to lots and lots of galaxies. So the galaxy clusters I study are, are home to thousands of galaxies. Okay, so you've got thousands of gal- galaxies clumped together to form this big cluster. Yes, right. Yeah, and, and okay. And so, what uh, particular aspect of these clusters are you looking at? 
with the first part of my PhD, we're looking at how um, which environment within the cluster has a greater effect on, on the gas content. So is it the local environment? And by that, I mean the galaxies and its immediate surroundings. So galaxy clusters grow by having more groups or galaxies fall onto, onto it. And so we, we, can, we can trace the, the substructure within, within the galaxy clusters. So my work is comparing the, the gas content, average gas content of, of galaxies that, that might live within some of these substructures to the global cluster environment. Okay, so you're saying that a cluster of galaxies actually has some substructure in it where within that clustering of galaxies, you've got some smaller bits of galaxies clustered particularly close together. Yes. Yeah. And they're called groups. Yeah, or substructure, yeah. Right, okay. So, um, and then you're looking at the gas. Yeah. The hydrogen gas, presumably. Yes. Okay, so I think we spoke about this. Oh, I'm losing track of the episode numbers now, but I think it was episode 11 and 12 when I went to Australia to a conference about this this hydrogen gas, which we call H1. Uh, so I don't want to repeat too much for the listeners, but in your own words, why is it important to look at hydrogen gas in galaxies? So hydrogen gas is the most abundant um, of the gases in a galaxy. And, and in particular, the neutral atomic hydrogen is the most out of all of that. When you look at, at galaxies where there's a clear detection of H1, the, the gas disk extends far beyond the optical disk. And so it's often the first to experience some kind of envi- you know, environmental influence. But the, the neutral hydrogen gas clouds form the kind of uh, the, the reservoir from which stars eventually form. Neutral gas clouds, through some kind of a process, will start to collapse and then they, you know, they get colder, they start to collapse. The neutral hydrogen becomes molecular hydrogen and then eventually collapses more and then, and then a star is born. What do we expect uh, about the amount of gas inside galaxies in a cluster? So, as I said, because um, hydrogen gas in galaxies is very sensitive to, to environmental effects, interactions, the hydrogen gas in, in galaxies tends to be, to be stripped out as galaxies um, fall into the cluster. Um, so we don't expect to see a lot of gas in these galaxies, particularly as you get closer to the cluster centre. Right, so I'm actually remembering now, we spoke to um, Dr. Brenda Namumba, I think it was in episode 11 or 12, uh, and she was telling us about how the the fuzzy gas at the edges of galaxies actually gets disturbed first when there's an interaction between different galaxies because of gravity. And so you can, by looking at the gas, you can actually tell whether or not there was an interaction, but you can't really tell by looking at the stars, for example. Yeah. Right, so now you're saying that towards the centre of a cluster where you're going to have the most density, so galaxies are going to be most tightly packed, you've got less gas. Is that right? That is true um, for a number of reasons. Also at the center of, it's very hot at the center of clusters. We see the center of, of clusters in x-rays, which indicates to us that there's a, there's a large collection of very hot ionized gas at the center of, of clusters, which we call the intracluster medium. This exerts a pressure on galaxies falling in. Pressure strips um, the gas out of galaxies as they fall in, but also because it's very hot at the center, the hydrogen gas or the neutral gas gets ionized. Oh, right. Okay. So within your big cluster, I'm imagining a ball 
of little galaxies, right? And then in the very centre, you've got this glowing hot gas. Yeah. And then the galaxies are trying to fall in towards the centre of the cluster because of gravity. And as they do, they're ploughing through this gas and it's stripping out, it's like uh, blowing out all of the nice little hydrogen gas that they have. And because it's so hot, it's also ionising the gas. Yeah. Which means that uh, the electrons are getting stripped off the hydrogen atoms. Yes. Yeah. Right. Cool. So if you've got these these galaxies in the centre and they don't have any gas, what do they look like? How do we know this? So these tend to be kind of what we call red uh, red and dead galaxies. <laughs> um, so in, in the optical, they appear to be quite, quite red. There's no ongoing star formation, which usually shows up as blue. And it's red because the stars have just gotten old, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's been no no stars forming um, mm. recently because there's nothing, you know, there's no reservoir from which they can form. Yeah, okay, so young stars are blue, old stars are red. We can see that these galaxies are red, so we think that they're old, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this is kind of typical in, in dense environments like galaxies. Um, it's a pretty well-known thing that dense environments are home, home to, to old galaxies, whereas less dense environments tend to be home to more of the younger galaxies. Okay, so what uh, what in particular are you looking at? So with my work, we've got this this data on on a cluster, and and we're trying to understand what you know which type of environment causes the dense environments to be home to these these older galaxies. So as I as I mentioned earlier, substructure yeah, clusters have substructure, and this is a signature of of the groups that have fallen into the cluster. Um, so do the do the group environments have a stronger um, effect on the evolution of galaxies. So, do our galaxies old before they fall into the cluster, or is it the cluster that's you know removing all the H one and stopping ongoing star formation? Okay, so you're trying to find out whether the galaxies had already lost their gas before they fell into the center, or whether they're falling into the center and therefore they lose their gas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, what have you found? Still, still work in progress. Um, it's very difficult, you know, even with the very high sensitivity data that I have to get a measurement. So I've been working on, on a cluster called the Coma Cluster, and we have some very high sensitivity um, H1 data from the Westwalk Radio Telescope in the Netherlands. But, you know, even with this, this pristine data um, out of a galaxy cluster of about a thousand members, we've, you know, we've only got a handful where we can actually see the the h1 really so out of a thousand galaxies using some of the best data that's available you can only see about 40 40 galaxies in h1 yeah yeah so we know we know that there's there's obviously way more there because we've got um, a huge wealth of optical information but you can't directly detect the h1 in these galaxies because there's, there's so little all right so why why are you looking for it if there's not much there well, I mean, just because we can't detect it doesn't mean that it's not there. Oh. And so um, we can use um, statistical techniques, which is what, and, and I use a technique called H1 stacking. Which I know all about because <laughs> I did that for my PhD. <laughs> yeah. Cite your work lots, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so the H1 stacking, we, we know where... Uh, in space and in frequency, these galaxies should, galaxies should be because we've got this from the optical information. And so we extract out um, the galaxy spectra and we can align them and then we co-add them. And that will hopefully create a higher signal-to-noise spectrum from which you can get an average measure of, of the gas content. However, this is, you know, it's, it's not a guarantee you will get a detection in the stacked spectrum. 
and I think the fact that we are struggling to get a, a, a detection um, is telling in its own right. It means that these these galaxies are even even more deficient than we than we ever expected. Okay, so we don't see any hydrogen gas with normal observations. So you just look at a galaxy and you don't see any. Yeah. Right? And then you're using the statistical method of stacking where instead of looking at one galaxy for a really long time to collect all the photons coming from it, you just look at a lot of different galaxies for a short time and you combine that signal together and you say, okay, these galaxies on average have this amount of gas. Yeah. But you're saying that when you do this stacking, you still don't find any hydrogen. So they even they have even less than we thought they, what they yeah. did. Yeah. Okay. So, so you said you're looking at coma. Mm-hmm. Is that the only cluster you're looking at? No. So uh, the coma cluster has been the first part of my PhD. The second part is um, looking at another cluster uh, called Abel 2626. Oh, what a nice name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a cluster in also in the northern sky in a larger environment that they call the Perseus Pegasus filament. Oh, that's even a nicer name. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's quite an interesting cluster. It's, it's very different to coma. It's not quite as big. Uh, it's not as well studied, so there's been no H1 measurements of it to date um, that I'm aware of. But it's it's also got some some it's home to some very interesting types of galaxies, which was also part of the motivation for choosing this cluster. So it's home to um, what we call jellyfish galaxies. Jellyfish galaxies. <laughs> yeah. So jellyfish galaxies um, are galaxies where you can see um, so where they've they've fallen into the cluster and they've been stripped of of their gas as they've fallen in, and you can see ionized tails. Of gas coming outside, you know, out the back, but oh, like, like like jellyfish tentacles. tentacles. Yeah, exactly. Oh. That's where the name comes from. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. Do they yeah. look like jellyfish when you look at them? Um, some of them do. Some more than others. Okay. We have to have a bit of an imagination, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> so if you squint and turn your head sideways, it sort of looks like a jellyfish. I mean, I think the one, you know, the 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 famous one within this cluster, I think, um, is pretty convincing when you see the data. Is it public? No, not yet. Okay. All right. So you said there's obviously some optical data because we can see the pictures of these nice um, jellyfish galaxies. But you you mentioned that this is the first time, to the best of your knowledge, that you've collected radio data, this um, H1 data. So did you use the Netherlands telescope for this as well? No, no, no. So I was um, lucky enough to to be a, a PI on a, a proposal with f- under the Meerkat open call. So this is, is some of the first Meerkat data. Wow. Um, you yeah. got some Meerkat data of your own. Yep. That is rare as, I don't know what's rare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's super exciting. I mean, obviously, I share this data with my collaborators who who helped write the proposal. But you're the um, PI. You're, but you're I the am principal investigator. Indeed, yeah. In, oh, that's so cool. I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So the reason why um, we had to use Meerkat to observe this this cluster is that it's, it's at a distance or a redshift where the H1 the frequency of the H1 line is coincident with a lot of radio frequency interference at, at other sites. Radio frequency interference, what's that? Um, so radio frequency interference or RFI can come from many different sources. In particular, you know, our phones um, transmit in, you know, over radio frequencies. So it is, you know, obviously radios, televisions, even electric cables generate really RFI. And so one of the reasons why they couldn't use the um, the very large array or the JVLA in, in the States, for example, was because of radar, airplane uh, airport radar. 
Oh, so that we can't use some of the big telescopes in the northern hemisphere because it, it, it interferes. Well, yeah, but it's it's you know it's at very limited frequency band. So um, don't get me wrong, JVLA is still an incredible instrument, and there's some that's in New Mexico, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and and there's some incredible science that comes out of it. But for this particular cluster, and in particular some of the galaxies within the cluster, the radio, the H one line, the frequency of the H one line is coincident with that um, that radar RFI, and so. While we can get the line measurements using um, JVLA of this cluster, we cannot get H1. So you're using Meerkat because it's no, it doesn't have that same radar no, problem. No, the RFI <laughs> at the Meerkat site is pristine. Ooh. It's very clear. Why is that? Why is there so little radio frequency interference there? In part, it's it's so isolated. Um, there's so few people that live in, in that region. But also, you know, and not to discount what our government's done, um, we have a beautiful piece of legislation that protects radio astronomy and and the zones around, you know, the area around Meerkat site and, and, and the SKA site. So it was almost chosen because it's a protective, Absolutely. protective radio, yeah, radio zone. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know we have uh, the same in Australia near the near the ASCAP and MWA sites as yeah. well. So yeah, the governments have done a really good job of that. They have very um, forward thinking. Yeah, because we all have to share. Of course, we have yeah. to share all of the bandwidth. Uh, a lot of people are trying to do a lot of different things with it, but uh, I'm glad that we're doing some things yeah. in radio astronomy. I guess the next problem will be the satellites mm-hmm. when uh, the sort of satellite constellations launch and well there's no way we can hide from from that right rfi no, no i think we'll be in the clear though for um for h1 studies but um because they transmitted a different frequency yes mm. but you know for other for you know for science cases that might need higher frequencies they absolutely will be affected Right. Okay. Anyway, I'm yeah. getting a bit off topic, yeah. but but your point was that you use Meerkat because it's free of RFI and it's also an epic, awesome radio telescope yes. that's brand new, very sensitive. Yes. So we get the same, almost the same, no, the same sensitivity with um with Meerkat of of Abel two six two, um as I get with of Coma. And ABL two six two is about twice as far, and and why that's important is our ability to detect the signal is is related to how how close or how far away it is. So the further away it is, the more difficult it is to detect. So the fact that we've got the same detection limit um, with two six two as we do with Coma, as far away as it is, Jeez. is incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really amazing. It's kind of mind-blowing how, yeah. how powerful Meerkat is. What does the data look like? Have you had a chance to play with it yet? Uh, just started getting my hands dirty with it. Okay, exciting. Um, so early yeah. days. Very early days, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess there's a big learning curve, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's a new instrument, so there's, you know, new data reduction software and, you know, new cluster, computer clusters to, to run the software on. So lots of, you know, teething problems, lots of learning problems, learning curves, you know, the yeah. whole shebang. And this is why you're getting a PhD out of it, because yep. it's not easy and no one's done it before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, that's super exciting. Yeah. Um, good luck. Thank you. And uh, well, actually, I'm I'm one of your collaborators yes. on the project, so I, <laughs> I do have some access to the data as well, and I'm looking forward to working with you on that. But just before we we wrap up, I wanted to men- talk to you also about your trip to Lindau. Mm. Um, well, we spoke in the previous episode to Nicole Thomas, who of course also went to this yes. Lindau meeting, but we didn't go into a lot of detail about where is Lindau, what it is. So yeah, tell us about tell us about that. 
So Lindau is a um, small town in Germany. On it's on a little island, Lindau Island, in on the Bodensee, in in the south of Germany. So you can actually see from the little town, you can see Austria um, on one corner and Switzerland on the other side of the of the lake. So yeah, it's um, the Lindau Foundation, I guess, was formed shortly after World War Two, and and the whole idea was to bring together young scientists and um, you know, Nobel laureates to a place where they can discuss. And I, and I think this is you know, trying to get Germany back into the science game um, and back into you know, the networking and that. So it brings together close to 600 young scientists. And, and this year we had 40 Nobel laureates. 40. Four zero. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. Yeah, I thought Nicole said 14, but she said 40. <laughs> Four zero, yeah. So not all of them were physics Nobel Prize winners. There were a couple of chemistry um, and medicine and physiology. And then on our last day, there was a Peace Prize winner. Cool. Yeah. But it, yeah, it was a phenomenal experience. And listening to them talk, I mean, they've got some, done some great science um, that, you know, can be pretty, pretty intimidating and pretty hard to aspire to. But the overwhelming message from them was, you know, it was just dumb luck that they were awarded this prize. And, and when they said that, the they said that. Said yeah. That. Actually, I think that that's a direct quote from one of them. Okay. <laughs> um, sheer dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, so it, the, basically the, the overwhelming message was, you know what's good science, do what you enjoy, and just work hard. Um, none of them expected to get a Nobel Prize from it. They just, they carried on working. They did what they did. And a lot of them, you know, it's related to their PhD work. Really? Yeah. I think that's a great message. So just do what you think is important. and Yeah, do yeah. what you enjoy. I mean, you never know what's going to win the next Nobel Prize. And in fact, they were asked at a, at a panel, you know, what do you think is going to win the 2019 prize? And they all said, we don't want to guess because you cannot predict it. So there's no point trying to set yourself up for a, a Nobel Prize because you won't win it. Well, we now know what the 2019 prize was for, as we mentioned last time. It was for the cosmology and the uh, exoplanets. exoplanets. Yay, astronomy. Yay, yeah. I mean, kicking kicking goals all over the place. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about your experience in Lindau. What was the South African um, component to it? How many people were there? So, um, as Nicole mentioned um, in the previous episode, um, South Africa were the hosts of, of International Day. So we had a bigger delegation than normal this year. There were 20 of us. Being with, you know, 20 South Africans on, on the world stage like that was amazing. And it was incredible chatting to people after, after the International Day. So International Day was on the Monday night, chatting to them later in the week. And, you know, everyone's looking back at Monday night going, wow, that was such an incredible party. Oh, my goodness. So South Africans really know how to, you know, put a party on. What happened at this party? I want to know. <laughs> I mean, the food was great and, and it was fantastic wine. Um, <laughs> South African wine, South African course. wine, of course. Um, but, you know, I think the general um, chies of, of South Africans, I mean, the musicians um, that played were a South African band and, you know, just the general spirit, The you know, the music started playing and the South Africans were all on the dance floor. Apparently a first at Lindau. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, and people on the dance floor all night. Um, and so to have that experience experience um you know it was just it was incredible i've i've almost never been as proud to be south african wow. and and representing south african culture but also you know south african science yeah just bringing south african science and culture to a world, world stage, stage and everyone yeah. enjoying it and people were complimenting us before they even saw the fact that we had a south african flag hanging around our necks wow um so they were genuine compliments 
Amazing. It must yeah. have been quite an experience. It was. But I, I think also, um, so the, the other cool thing that happened that week was um, the Academy of Sciences who, who of South Africa who sponsored our trip um, organized a dinner for us on a Tuesday night um, with one of the Nobel laureates. Ooh. We, we were lucky enough to have dinner with um, Donna Strickland and her <gasps> what? husband. Yes. So Donna oh Strickland um, was one of the 2018 um, Physics Nobel Prize winners. The um, first woman. No, sorry. She is the one third of, right. woman ever to win a Physics Nobel Prize and the first in 55 years. Oh, my God. So the only living one, as far as I'm aware. Oh, I'm gushing. Yeah, <laughs> what uh, an incredible she, experience. She was so lovely to chat to and so down to earth. You get her talking about, so she won her, her physics, her prize for her PhD work on um, pulsed amplification of, light, of lasers. And don't ask me more than that because I don't really understand it. So, you you know, she's she's in laser physics and you get her talking about lasers and she would talk your ear off for the rest <laughs> of the evening. So it was it was lovely to chat to her um, about what led up to the work that she did, her life as a PhD student, but also her husband's also a PhD in, in laser physics. So, you know, chatting to her about how it is to be, um, you know, you know, to have your partner in in the same field as you and how you deal with that when, you know, going into academia. And it was it was awesome to chat to her. Right. So she had a lot of, of life lessons to yes. share as well yeah. as the science. Yeah. Yeah. I guess these are the best people to learn from. Absolutely. You know, they, they show us that um, that it's possible. You know, academia is not necessarily an easy path, but there's people who have done it before us. So you can you can have it all. And how did you um, did you have to get selected to go on this trip? Yes, so there was a call that was put out by the Academy of Sciences of South Africa, and and they they initially selected um, some number of us, and they put our applications forward to with their support to the Lindau committee, and then the Lindau committee themselves made the final selection. Would you recommend young other young scientists in South Africa applying for this in the future? Absolutely. Um, you know, if you're in any one of the fields that that has a, a Lindau meeting, um, and you're, you know, in your in your second year of your masters and up, um, I think the maximum age is 35. I absolutely 100% recommend that you go because it's it's more than just being able to to meet the Nobel laureates. It's those that you meet. Nicole mentioned a little bit about um, the networking and, and the potential collaborations that come out of it. But, you know, more than the work collaborations, it's the friends. Yeah. Um, we made some some incredible friends there. Which um, is essential to life. Yeah, exactly. And and we still keep in contact. So, yeah, no, wow. absolutely awesome. That's great. Well, that's not even your only big achievement this year. You also received a, 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 an amazing prize earlier this year. Tell us about that. So, yeah, um, I was awarded one of the 2019 South African Women in Science Awards. In particular, I was awarded one of the uh, Tata Doctoral Scholarships, which are awarded to, to three PhD students in, in the science field. Congratulations. Thank you. So what does that entail? Well, it was a pretty cool award ceremony, which they flew us up to, to Port Elizabeth for. Um, and it was held at a, a fancy hotel, and I was lucky enough to to take my mum with. Um, and so, being you know at the Women in Science Awards with one of, you know the number one woman in my life was was incredible. Oh, congratulations! So Thank well you. deserved, Julia. We're very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> so, just before we end, uh, do you have any final messages for listeners? 
I guess, you know, just to, to follow your dreams, um, I've, I've been very lucky that, you know, I've had super supportive parents that have always encouraged me to do my best and to follow my dreams and believe I could do them. Um, so, you know, if you, if you have a dream to be in science, um, my dream is to be an astronaut and it remains that no matter how elusive, um, you know, follow it. You know what the next step is and, and every small step gets you closer to that goal. Don't let others discourage you. Great. And I wholeheartedly agree. Where can listeners find you? So I do have a modest Twitter um, page. Modest. Come on. <laughs> it's full of stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. So I occasionally post um, stuff, you know, work that's going on or travels or whatever on Twitter. You can find me at uh, Healy21. Spell that for us. H-E-A-L-Y and then twin and the uh, number one. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Julia. It's been a pleasure and we hope to have you back soon. Well, thank you for having me. Sounds like she had a lot of fun at Lindau. Yeah, as did everyone. I'm so jealous. <laughs> uh, well, you went. I know. I yeah. want to go again. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think uh, great to hear from, from Julia. Great to hear she had such a great time and to hear a bit about, about her work. Uh, and, yeah, to, to hear that she's th – that sort of message from uh, the Nobel laureates that just do what you love, keep, keep doing what you love. Uh, you can't aim for a Nobel Prize. And I think, like, in general – Life is a bit like that. You don't know where you're going to end up. You don't know what you're going to end up doing. So take it a day at a time and try and enjoy what you're doing. And always think critically. And try to think critically. <laughs> All right. And that's it for episode 15. Um, thanks very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Brother Guy and Julia Healy for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Allnut for the music production, Yana Sprink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, and Tabisa Fikilepi for social media support. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please rate us or recommend us to a friend. We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah. Meteoriticists. Meteoriticists. Meteor meteoriticists. 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 <laughs> the lights have just gone out. It's load shedding. <laughs> just in the middle of recording. Okay. Just, just to be clear, our soundproof studio is also lightproof, apparently. <laughs> We've there now is learned. No natural light in here. <laughs>